All right, we're looking at Exodus 13, um, verses 17 through chapter 14, verse 31. So let's give our attention to God's word. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh, will say, <clears throat> for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been far better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without once coming near 
without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers, flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we talk about it further. Heavenly Father, we pray as we do every week that you would be with us, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would actually be here, that you would work in spite of our sin, that you would cause our, our deaf ears to be able to hear and our blind eyes to be able to see. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ever need, if you're ever looking uh, to kill a good hour or so, all you need to do is uh, get online and Google something like amazing rescue stories. And uh, you'll have no problem killing at least an hour. Uh, that's exa- exactly what I did as I was working on this sermon and trying to find a good, um, a good opening illustration. And I basically ended up in this uh, you know, wormhole, internet wormhole. You know how it goes. Like, oh, that looks good. That looks good. And so I just read story after story of these, uh, of these great rescue stories. Um, most of them, the ones that I, I thought were interesting were ones from, uh, you know, when I was growing up or that I haven't thought about in a while. Uh, do you even remember baby Jessica? Or you know, I know you don't remember it because you weren't born, but uh, baby Jessica, Midland, Texas. So not all that far from here. Uh, Midland, Texas, 18 month old uh, little girl, baby Jessica, 1987. She fell down an eight inch wide hole, some sort of drain pipe. She went 22 feet down and got stuck in this drain pipe. They worked for 58 straight hours to get her out, and they did. And she's, she's fine. I can remember watching it on TV. Maybe you remember uh, 2003, maybe not, Jessica Lynch, an American soldier that was captured by Iraqi forces. She was tortured, she was held in the hospital in Iraq, and uh, our special, force, special forces orchestrated an amazing rescue. Uh, Captain Richard Phillips, 2009, the Maersk, Alabama, was taken over by the, the pirates, and uh, they end up 
you know, somehow they end up on the, the uh, sort of rescue boat or whatever with three pirates and Captain Phillips. And SEAL Team 6 comes in and with three snipers, three sniper bullets, three dead pirates in one instance, which is just pretty awesome unless you're a pirate. <laughs> right, you might have seen Argo, the movie, uh, based on a, a true story, of course. Um, you know, we could go on and on. And those stories, I think, are so fascinating. They resonate with us. Because we love a good rescue story. There's something about seeing people that were in terrible circumstances uh, being brought out and brought to freedom that resonates with us. And if you've been with us, you know that this semester we're studying through Exodus. And Exodus is this great rescue story of God saving his people out of Egypt. And we're saying our theme every week is that Exodus is really the pattern of salvation. That the way that we see God save His people in Exodus is the, uh, the same way that He still saves people today. And so as we, look at, as we drill down and look at these stories, and we see God save, we can learn a great deal about what it means to experience God's salvation, even today. And so tonight we come uh, you know, to this sort of climactic passage. If you're going to make a movie about all of this, which right, we're going to watch on Friday... Uh, If you're going to make a movie about it, this is the climax. This is the best part of the movie. This is the rescue of the rescue. And what I want you to see tonight overall is that salvation, salvation brings freedom. So we're going to look at that in three ways, or we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the situation. Secondly, we'll look at the rescue plan. Thirdly and finally, we'll look at the result. So first, what's the situation? What's going on? Right, as we just said, over the overall situation, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for, what, 400 some odd years? And then after, you know, a lot of strife, uh, plagues and whatnot, Pharaoh finally says uh, that the, uh, the uh, Israelites can go, and they head out. God leads his people out. He's guiding them by this, uh, you know, some sort of enormous column of smoke and fire by day and night. And he actually leads them in a seemingly very unusual path. They don't go the shortest route. Um, uh, And they appear to the Egyptians, they're following God, right? But they appear to the Egyptians to be lost. And so Pharaoh looks and he he basically changes his mind. And he says, you know, they sort of, it's like they come to their senses and they say, what were we doing? Why did we let them go? So let's go get them. And so Pharaoh decides to go after them and chases them down and catches up to them. And so basically you have the Israelites are up against the Red Sea. Okay, that didn't scare me. What, do we need to do anything about that sound, people? Thank you. Um, Where are we? Exodus? Uh, Let's see. Right, they're up against the Red Sea. They've got their back. The ocean is at their back. And they've got the, the biggest and most fierce army in the world bearing down on them, coming from the other way. So in other words, they are completely stuck. Nowhere to go. And look how they respond, verse 11 and 12. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? And they say, look... 
you know, didn't we tell you that we basically didn't want to leave in the first place? It had been better for us just to stay slaves than to just die out here. And so what you see is that these Israelites, they basically freak out and essentially say, we want to go back. We, we just would rather go back. And now keep in mind, like we've said all semester, they, they were slaves in Egypt. They were absolutely miserable. Life was not good in Egypt. They were enslaved to what was killing them. And, and, and now there's this real sense in which they, they want to go back to it. Yes, on the one hand, they, do, they, they did and they still do want to be free from Egypt. But at the same time, they're, they're, they're very quick to run back to the thing that was enslaving them. And like we said all semester, uh, this, this is really a great picture of what you and I and all people are like. Right? We've said that we all tend, we all are born into this world, we all default to, to loving and serving something other than God. We're all, we all devote ourselves, really make ourselves slaves to something else. And those things, they enslave us and they make us work for it. And if we ever decide to not work for that thing, whatever it might be, it threatens to kill us. The second that we say, you know what, I I don't want any part of this, it it basically looks at us and says, if you're not going to work for me, you're going to die. It's either me or death. Right? It's the enemy. And we hate it, but we tend to go back to it. Um, Israel, right, we see Israel, they always seem to try to go back and, and they want to make Egypt happy again. And we do the same thing. Uh, we give ourselves over to something other than God and that thing owns us. You know, I think you can see it very vividly. Uh, right, if you think about somebody that's, that's deep into some sort of drug addiction. And look, if you're here and, you're, and you find yourself in that uh, you find yourself in some sort of drug addiction. I hope you know I'm not making fun of that or making light of that. I just think it's a, it's a helpful picture. You know, on the one hand, somebody that's deep into an addiction, they hate it. They hate that drug because of what it's doing to them. And at the same time, that's the thing that they want more than anything else. They love the thing that's killing them. And they basically hear it saying, if you don't serve me, if you don't have me, you're going to die. So for us, you know, what is it? It can be anything. It can be, uh, it can be popularity. Right? You might, you might serve um, the idol, so to speak, of popularity. And it might make you work for it. And that work might look like um, your social media activity. Right? I don't hear too many people that say, like, I love all the work that I put into social media, right? I bet a lot of you, if you're honest, you're kind of tired of it. In some sense, you're a slave to it. Yes, you like it on the one hand, but, but you have to do it. If you stop, you think if you stop, I, that's the end of me. You love what it does for you and you can't quit it. Or maybe it's pornography, and, and maybe you find yourself, you, basically you don't really know who you are outside of pornography. And you, you might stop for a little bit. 
You know, you might sort of wake up and say, look, this is bad. I'm going I'm to put it down. And, and you work really hard at it, but then you get lonely or you feel bored or uh, you feel uh, insignificant in some way and you, and you, you find yourself going back to it. And, and you, what you hear it saying is, you can't live without me. You're nothing. I mean, look at you. You got to have this. Or maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend, right? We've all seen that play out um, in bad relationships. If you break up with him, right? We love, we, we, we love being in a relationship. And, and the, there's the threat of if you break up, then you just might leave college single. And that thought just sounds like death. And you can't quit it. It could be a million other things, right? But that's our problem. We've got this enemy of evil. And it's inside of us. In some sense, it is us. It's also outside of us. And there's nothing we can do about it. We've got an enemy. We've got a problem. And we can't fight against it, right? We're stuck like these Israelites. But what I want you to see is that God actually has them right where he wants them. He put them. He led them. He led them to stuck. And so if you're there, if you're tracking with me tonight and you find yourself resonating with any of this and saying, yeah, that, I am stuck in whatever it is, then I, I want you to actually take a little bit of encouragement because of what we're about to see. And I want you to know that, God, that you're actually right where God wants you for now. And I want you to see the second thing that we're going to talk about, which is the rescue plan. Let's take a look at what, this, at what God's plan of salvation is for these folks. So the Israelites are stuck. They're absolutely losing their minds. And what's the plan that comes down from God through Moses? Verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Here it is. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Basically, God looks at them and he says, look, here's the deal. Here's the plan. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to take on your enemy. I'm going to beat them. I'm going to defeat the enemy. And here's what you're going to do. Nothing. I want you to stand there. I want you to be quiet. I want you to watch. And all you got to do is walk when it's time to walk. I thought about it. It's kind of like when we, when we go shopping and you go into some stores. I feel like it's, it's what we tell our kids. I want you to be quiet. I want you to stand still. I don't want you to touch anything. Right? <laughs> don't want you to do anything. I don't know if that's really a good illustration. I just thought it was funny. So with this impossible situation at hand, right, what does God do? He moves behind the Israelites in the pillar of cloud, shielding his people from the, from the enemy so that they can't see them or get to them. And then God sends a wind all night to blow back, blow back the water. And he blows the, the water blows up into a big, enormous wall on the right and an enormous wall on the left. And there's a pathway through the middle. And like literally a million people or more walk through this sea, right? Walk through this enormous body of water on dry ground to the other side. And then after they get to the other side, God moves out of the way so that Egypt can see what's going on. And they say, go get them. And they chase after them. They get into the middle of the sea. 
And God parts the waters back on top of them and kills every one of them. It was even obvious to Egypt what was going on. The plan was obvious to them. Verse 25, And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The plan, very simply, is God God fights for his people. He does it all. Uh, have any of you seen um, any of you see a show on MTV several years ago called uh, Bully Beatdown? Anybody? See like a couple of nods. Okay, YouTube it because it's awesome. All right, it's called Bully Beatdown. Here was the basic idea. The basic idea was they would take somebody um, who had a bully in their life. It was somebody they were also sort of friends with, right? It's usually like a roommate situation. Um, but basically, like the you know the the bully is just this kind of jerk, and he's always giving the other guy a hard time, or doesn't pay his rent really like he should. And, you know, they go out together, and they get he gets in fights at bars, and, you know, something like that. So you've got a bully and the guy that he, you know, gave a hard time to, and those two guys are basically the contestants. And here's the show: what they do is they give the bully some basic uh, basic MMA training. And then the show culminates in having the bully fight a professional MMA fighter. And here's the, the dynamic. They give, uh, the, the bully starts out with $10,000 of the show's money credited to him. It's, it's, it defaults to him. And then he's going to fight this professional fighter for uh, two rounds of three minutes. That's it. Just two rounds. Three minutes, right? Six minutes. All right, so he loses $1,000 every time he taps out. Um, Let's see, what else? And if he quits or he gets knocked out, then they don't get anything. Whatever money that the bully loses goes to the victim, right? The the guy that got picked on. All right, over the 24 episodes of the show, I don't know how it didn't last longer. uh, 24 episodes of the show, the bully won 14% of the money. 14%, 14%, right? They don't call it bully beat down for nothing. You got to watch it. Every one of the guys like, look, I mean, he might be me, but I'm not going to tap out. I'll tell you that much. Like, I'm, you know, no way I'm going to tap out. And these dudes, I mean, these look like tough dudes. I mean, they, they can't tap fast enough in like five seconds. But you've got this victim that can't fight for himself. So this professional, look, man, and oh, it is just incredible to watch these guys like they are efficient Um, he does all the work he comes in this guy can't fight for himself so basically says i will fight for you i will do everything i will destroy this guy for you and what do you get you get all the money right that's just a little picture of what's going on here god is fighting for his people that can't fight for themselves Okay, great. So what about us? Well, look, in Luke 9, which is Luke's account of the transfiguration where Jesus takes uh, James and Peter and John. He goes up on the mountain and God basically pulls back sort of the curtain on Jesus' glory and he starts to shine. Uh, Right after that happened, um, basically Moses and Elijah show up and they start having this conversation with Jesus. Uh, listen to this, uh, 9, 30, 31. It says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, uh, who appeared in glory 
and spoke of his, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah show up and they talk to Jesus about Jesus' departure. It's the way we translate it. But the Greek word there for departure is exodus. Moses and Elijah show up and they talk, they have this conversation with Jesus about Jesus' exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So what's the point? Why do I tell you that? The point is that this exodus in in Exodus that we just read, it's just a pointer forward to the true exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish. And it's specifically pointing to his death. That Jesus is going to show up and did show up. And and he fought for his people. He defeated the enemy. And he did it all himself. He does it all for us. Right? I think you could stretch it out really to see, but everything in Jesus' life is him fighting for us. It's why he gets baptized. Why would Jesus get baptized? The Bible says to fulfill all righteousness, but he's totally righteous. But we're not. Right? He does it for us. He fights for us. He uh, withstands the temptation of the devil. And then ultimately, like we said, on the cross, Jesus takes the judgment for us. He, he, he battles the enemy for us. And he takes the head of the serpent, right, of Satan, and he crushes it. Right? Did you notice in the, in the story of Exodus that... Uh, the, the water that they walk through, in one sense, it sort, of, it sort of symbolizes life and it sort of symbolizes death at the same time. It's life to the Egyptians. I mean, to the, uh, to the Israelites, excuse me. It's a big difference. It's life to the Israelites. That was their way out. And it was death to the Egyptians. Right? The same is true for Jesus. He fights for us. His death is our life. He takes on the judgment in our place. And what do we do? Nothing, right? We, just, we simply just get to take it. Salvation comes to us absolutely for free. If you try to earn it, if we try to earn it, all we do is mess it up. Um, if you've ever tried to uh, think about, makes me think about trying to put Lucy's shoes on her a couple of years ago when she was two before she could put it on her. That's the hardest thing in the world for some reason, to put shoes on another human being. You, you, you probably hadn't tried it in a while. And if Lucy, when I was trying to put Lucy's shoes on her, every once in a while, you know, like she, she's moving her feet around. And I said, Lucy, stop. Just stop. What are you doing? I'm trying to help, Daddy. Like, okay, well, if you stop helping, I can do it. Just let, let me do it all, Right? Because when Lucy helped, all she did was ensure that it wasn't going to work. I think that's a picture of us with, our, with salvation. Just like the guys on Bully Beatdown. They simply just get the money. Look, you can only come to God and receive His salvation if you come with empty hands. Uh, you, you simply just get to take it. You can't, you can't go to church enough and earn it. You can't do enough good things. Uh, read your Bible enough. You can't stop sinning enough, tell enough people about Jesus to earn it. All you do, it's so beautiful. Moses said, all you do is just be quiet. Just just stand here and God will do it. That's the good news of salvation. 
All right, lastly, I want us to look at the result. And this really is the highlight of the, of the whole thing. What's the result of this rescue plan? What's the outcome? The enemy is gone. The enemy's gone. Israel is, is truly free. The Egyptians are dead. And now look, as we, as we talk about this, let me give a little disclaimer on the front end. There are going to be more battles to come. Right? They're going to be... They're going to be more uh, enemies. But this is a glimpse. I want to suggest to you that this is a glimpse of what is objectively true about them at that point. That true, they're not in the promised land and they're going to be other enemies, but their enemies are ultimately dead. All right, so I want you to picture what that would have been like. Think about this. Think about, think about the noise, right? You're, you're, you and everyone that you know are stuck with the ocean at your back. And the biggest army in the world, like you can hear the, you know, just the thunderous sound of these chariots, which basically would be like tanks, right, to us. These just war machines thundering at you. You know, maybe their soldiers are yelling, and the horsemen, the hoot, you know, it's just, it's just this thunder coming at you. And no doubt, uh, you know, you've got women and children screaming. All the men of Israel are yelling at each other and screaming, terrified, yelling at God. And it's just chaos. And then what happens? Right? God moves, in, moves behind you. And then the wind howls all night long as the waters get pushed back. And, and, and then you, you go through the sea. And then you, hear the, uh, then you hear the army coming again. And then you hear the chaos of them getting stuck and realizing that, that God is fighting for them. And then you hear what I can't imagine what it would sound like to have two enormous walls, two halves of oceans just come crashing down together. One on top of the, just boom. And as soon as that happens, it's over. And, you know, I'm using a little bit of license here, but I just picture that all of a sudden, all the noise and all the chaos, and it's just quiet. And maybe you can hear just the, the you know, the waves just kind of lapping up against the shore. And you even see, as, as strange as this picture might be, but you even see dead Egyptians floating up. And you realize it's over. That's it. You really are free. But we've got to hurry, but this is so good. Um, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, go home and read, read it. It basically tells us that the Israelites going through the sea uh, is, is a picture of being baptized into Christ. That... That this is a picture of believers, of, of what happens when believers are united to Jesus. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? It means to embrace the good news that Jesus has defeated your enemies, the enemies of sin and death and evil, by dying for you and rising from the dead. And basically that he offers to tie your life to his. So that what's true of him is true of you. That Jesus' death can be the death that you deserve. 
And that his new life, his rising from the dead is the, is, is the life that you get. Uh, Romans 6 talks about, uh, talks about that very concept. And it talks about how if you're united to Christ, uh, let me see, I don't want to read you the whole thing. Um, it's verses 3 through 7, I'm just going to pick out a, a sentence or two. It says, because of this reality, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to death, brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then the last thing I want to read to you is uh, Colossians 2. Paul's talking about the same thing, and listen to what he says. Because of the cross, it says that God made us alive because of what Jesus did. And then uh, Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That because of what Jesus did on the cross, your enemy is defeated that he robs them of their power. So look, here's what it all means. Here's the, here's the payoff, and it is really good. That because of the good news of Jesus, what he has accomplished, the enemy of sin and death and evil, it does not own you anymore. That is the objective truth if you are in Christ. That sin does not enslave you. It has no more power over you. Then what those verses are attesting to, what they're telling us, is what this uh, picture of the Israelites on the shore looking at their dead Egyptian enemies is showing us. And look, I know what you're thinking, uh, at least you know, if, you're, if you're tracking, that, but it sure doesn't feel like that. It feels very much like the enemy is still very alive. And what I want you to see is that the, the objective reality is he has, the objective reality, the good news, is that the enemy is dead. Yes, he still has um, yes, he still, uh, still can have some effect, but he is ultimately defeated. He has no power over you. It has no power over you. Sin is not in charge of your life anymore. Look, you're always, the Bible tells us that we're always going to have sin in this lifetime. But, but look, this, the good, this good news means that when you're tempted to sin, when you find yourself wanting to go back to it, or maybe when you have gone back to it and your conscience rises up and, and it accuses you again, and it says, see, it owns you. The good news is that you, you get to, you have to, you get to remind yourself that its power has been robbed. That it does not own me anymore. It does not rule you. When that voice inside your head says that pornography owns you, you're never going to stop. That is simply not true. That you'll never stop being a gossip, so why even fight it? The gospel says that is not true. Uh, when you think, nobody thinks I'm attractive unless I drop a few more pounds, and so I better go back to the gym, or I'm, I'm worthless. That voice, the, the truth of that voice is dead. It has no power. 
because of what Jesus has done. What is true of you if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, if you, if you simply trust him, is that you have his righteousness. And let me end with this thought. Look, if you say to me, I hear you, but I keep failing. I keep screwing up. I keep having to go back to God in repentance and say, I did it again. I did it again. It supposedly doesn't have power over me, but I did it again. And it's killing me. Then I want you to hear this. I, I want to say to you, you don't sound like somebody that's dying. Because dead people don't struggle. Right? The struggle is evidence of life. The very fact that you are fighting against it is evidence that you are alive in Christ. So look, Jesus has fought for you, rescued you, and you have true freedom. And all you have to do is simply take it if you want it. And that's an invitation to you. I invite you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the amazing truth that you have triumphed over our enemies. And we pray that we would that we would trust you, that we would rest in that, that we would receive it uh, freely. Father, we pray that that would be true of everyone in this room. And if it's not, would you make it so? And we ask it in your name. Amen.